here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Welcome to our Legacy Planning Podcast, a podcast for leaders and visionaries of all ages. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Welcome, everyone. I'm Angelina Carlton, hostess of the Design Your Legacy podcast, where I look to distill the best practices, positive examples in action, and the best ideas to inspire you. As today's affluent are two-thirds self-made, I hope to invite a variety of guests from all walks of life and income levels to bring you their insights and experiences. These guests range from family office professionals, Hollywood directors, to those in Generation Z as they each contribute their thought leadership to this subject of legacy. I hope to provide interesting guests who challenge your beliefs with their strong bias towards optimism and how you too can value your life, time, and personal legacy. This morning, I have the pleasure of introducing Andrea Hansen. She is a neurobiological breakthrough specialist. She's also a psychedelic breakthrough specialist exploring complex trauma and addiction. She has her master's degree in educational psychology, and she hopes to reshape the psychiatric and mental health fields. Her mission is to heal global complex trauma, as well as end hunger, oppression, inequality, and war by facilitating neurobiological breakthroughs for leaders, artists, influencers, and innovators, innovators, bringing them to a state of optimization, tapping into their creative genius in a state of self-love, presence, and flow. She combines her personal and professional experiences, the latest research in neuroscience and psychology, and the wisdom of cultures throughout history. Welcome, Andrea. You, Angelina. It's good to be here. So uh, where would you like to start? Would you like to begin in setting the context of what you see with um, the existing landscape? Do you, would you like to start with a story? Yeah, so yeah, I can start with a, kind of a mix of the two. So, so I went into clinical mental health therapy after having experienced a lot of, um, you know, not great mental health therapists throughout the years and psychiatrists throughout the years. Uh, my, my parents had a really messy divorce. They were in court seriously twice a year from the time I was two to the time I was 17 and a half. Ah. It was, it was crazy. Uh, so there were a lot of court appointed psychologists and, and it was, it was a really traumatic experience, not just the court, but everything that was going on at home. Um, but of course I didn't realize that as a child, I didn't recognize that. Um, but, I, but as a teenager, I started to exhibit the symptoms of complex trauma, which of course in our society and with the way the mental health field works, we see that as diagnoses. Right. So I started um, having eating disorder issues, self-harm issues, um, wasn't really going to school very often. Um, and so I got sent to a residential treatment center 
which if anyone's followed the the Paris Hilton <laughs> situation, yes. you know, I was one of, in one of those in Utah. Um, and they, it was really re-traumatizing in, in so many ways. I think I saw my therapist three times during the six months that I was there. Okay. The rest of it was, um, you know, really, really based, you know, you're a bad kid. You need to stop being a bad kid, that kind of stuff. Can you say um, that one so more time? Can you say that one more time if it froze? Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, I went uh, to, you know, residential treatment center. It was very much shame-based. Um, uh, like you're yeah. a bad kid and you, you need to stop being a bad kid. You need to apologize for all the terrible things you've done. Look at how you've made everyone feel. Um, it was, it was really bad. <laughs> oh, you've personally experienced it. I know that they say sometimes opposites attract because it makes great babies, but mm-hmm. yet if there isn't sometimes enough in common then yes, absolutely. It can cause conflict. And then that obviously rolls downhill to the children. And yes. So you've experienced yeah. it firsthand regarding the, the blame placed on you as well as the public shaming. Yeah. Yeah. And the mental health field really just not being helpful. Um, and then as an adult, I went on, um, you know, it was in that treatment center. I decided that I wanted to become a mental health therapist that really actually listened and understood and was helpful that was something that I hadn't really encountered yet as a client. So I went, I went on to get my master's and throughout that whole process, I was always seeking out healing opportunities from therapists, from um, healers in different cultures and different spirituality type, type healers, just all kinds of different healing work. It was a really amazing experience. But the one thing that I noticed over and over again in the mental health field is they just wanted to sit and talk about things and talk about things and talk about changing your thoughts and changing your behaviors. And it was, you know, it's easy enough for me to change my thoughts. That's not a very difficult thing. But then there, I was left with this deeper down battle um, of, you know, there's all of this stuff happening. There's all of these, these things, these sensations, these waves, sometimes it felt like that, that would take over and it wasn't, it didn't matter the thoughts. Yeah. So are you referring to your nervous system? Are you referring to yourselves, cells in your body absorbing all of the, the, the different, um, you know, what's being thrown at you? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I learned as I, after I got my master's degree, I went into, um, so many specialized trainings and I just poured into the neuroscience research to really understand what exactly was happening. And I remember one particular training, I was just aghast. I was like, oh my gosh, why don't they teach this to therapists? Why did I have to seek this out in this very niche, you know, specialized field to find this information that it, it is lower down? It's, it's the lower regions of the brain, um, the okay. brain stem, the okay. nervous system, the T cells in the body get okay. affected by trauma. So it's so much lower down and our thoughts can't change those things. They just can't. Interesting. So you went on this journey almost of self-healing to find the answers for yourself. Then when you got those breakthroughs, now you can circle back to help others because Mm -hmm. you know what it is to walk a mile in those shoes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, along the way, I was also treating clients and I, I was implementing all of the things that I was learning in all of these trainings and seeing how much more effective it was for my clients who were struggling with you know, severe addiction, meth, opiates, you know, or homelessness, severe, you know, mental health. And really at the bottom of it was this trauma 
Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things we spoke about uh, before today's uh, conversation was that many times if there is, let's say, an affluent family and they send their teenage child age 13 to this treatment center, let's say in Utah, which apparently since that documentary, a courtesy of Paris Hilton, we're much more aware of what goes on. And so they could be at that treatment center for five years, four years. And you had, you had mentioned to me that oftentimes they will implode or explode if they don't have the opportunity to develop in self-expression compared to just being placed into this narrow box, like almost like a, a robot that needs to conform. Yeah, exactly. So, and it it's really re-traumatizing to be in these treatment centers. And I've witnessed it as a mental health therapist at a residential treatment center. Okay. The, the treatment center I worked at was actually one of the best in Utah, but okay. it still had some of those same issues of putting them in this narrow box. So right. when we experience trauma as children, it affects the way that we interact with the world. We start mitigating and adapting to, to make our environments as okay as possible. So then when we go into these residential treatment centers, we do the exact same thing with their rules. So it's not healing. It's just doing the exact same thing that got them there, but right. retraining them to live in this other certain box. They're not developing. They, yeah, they implode or they deplode. Yeah. And one of the other things you had mentioned to me is oftentimes they internalize it with this message of I am defective. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And that's one of the, the one of the main markers of complex trauma as opposed to um, simple trauma. Simple trauma isn't less intense and it's not less it's not lesser. Right. Okay. But in, in more simple trauma, there's typically a clear, you know, quote unquote, good guy and a clear, quote unquote, bad guy. Right. Okay. There's one person who's the victim who's not at fault and you can go out and you can talk about it more often. But in complex trauma, it's typically more shameful. Like there's something wrong with me. We take it on to ourselves that I'm somehow creating this environment. I, I'm a bad person. I'm defective. And we don't, we can't really talk about it because we feel like we're the bad guy in the situation. Right. Which is uh, obviously scapegoating, but a lot of times people won't have the language or the understanding of what's going on yet, especially if they're 13 years old. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that attachment disruption, we think of attachment and interaction between parents and children as really important in the toddler years. Okay. But research shows it's also really important during the teenage years. So you take those kids away and you have them, you know, only having conversations with their parents during therapy or during 15 minute phone calls that are monitored. And that attachment is disrupted and that messes with their neurobiological development. They can't develop properly when their attachment has been disrupted. And a, a lot of these kids never return home afterwards. So when you're, when you're, let me just go back for a moment. Um, I want to talk about what you just mentioned. So it's lower in the, the part of the brain. So is that fight or flight? Like if, yeah, so there's a there's a lot of regions that are lower than the region that we are that we think in and that we talk in. So the region that most therapy focuses on is the, the executive region. Okay. But we also have, you know, the default mode network, the salience network, the uh, limbic system, the mesolimbic system, the brain stem, um, all of those different layers of the brain are lower and they all get disrupted in the moment of trauma. Like one thing that, that gets disrupted is the, the thalamus. And the thalamus okay. is essentially the chef 
of the brain. Okay. Together, the sensory information, the, um, the thoughts about it, everything that's going on, and it makes sense of the situation and it stores it as a complete memory. But when that is disrupted, what we end up with is pieces of ourselves scattered throughout time because we're not able to put it as a singular memory in a point in our life. So we end up with these random sensations that pop up. Our salience network picks up on a threat okay. that may or may not seem like a threat logically, but to our salient system in that point in history, it seems like it might be a threat. And then the rest of our body just starts reacting to it as if that's what's happening. And getting triggered. And getting triggered. Exactly. So when we look at self-sabotage, it's typically not really self-sabotage. It's maybe our five-year-old self. Getting our five-year-old self's need met and feeling and getting up to a place where it feels safe. But we don't realize that because we're in the current moment. We're thinking like, this shouldn't be happening right now. This doesn't make any sense. But it really does make sense when you start to look at it. Right, right. Wonderful. Wonderful. So a lot of the times I think that this then leads to self-sabotage. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so we end up looking at it as self-sabotage and that can range from anything from, you know, getting in our own way to, uh, to, you know, addiction to, um, eating disruption, right. Where a lot of times what I see, especially, you know, in, in moms, typically it's a lot of, you know, controlling and monitoring and stuff throughout the day and then put the kids to sleep and then start binging on everything. Right. And that seems like a self-sabotage, but, with a lot of the, these women that I've worked with, um, and I, I say women, that's mostly been with this particular issue, but okay. I do work with men as well. Um, it oftentimes they experienced early childhood attachment disruption, whether it was a parent's divorce or living in a household where you know mom was um, bringing home all kinds of different guys all the time and, and not, not really having that uh, steady attachment. So then to feel the loneliness and to get that dopamine rush and to feel okay, they turn to binging. And then later in life, it just feels like they have the sabotaging habit, but really it's stored so much deeper down in their system. That's fascinating because a lot of the times we don't think about the root causes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to unpack them, I think takes courage because it's so much easier Uh, as the human being likes to conserve calories, they don't necessarily want to do the hard work unless they absolutely have to. And they, you know, are, are working toward a higher purpose or a larger vision, then they would be motivated and inspired to do that. So I just wanted to to go over that again, because I find it fascinating. So in order for someone to stop the self-sabotaging behavior, let's call it flipping back and forth, even they have to realize that the sabotage loops that they, they are creating meets some type of need within Yep. It, it totally does. Okay. Then have the courage to face it and it's, and, and find the proper help because talking about it, going back and talking about the trauma and noticing it and realizing it, that's the first step. Okay. And then actually digging into the body and recalibrating on a body level is the next piece. And it really isn't a complicated process. Well, it's a complicated process, but it's not extremely difficult for the client Okay. They, if they seek the right support. So for example, I, I just did a one half day breakthrough with a client and he was, um, before we started working together, he was having a really hard time with his business. He was 
going in these big yo-yos where it was kind of, um, you know, getting a lot of new clients or not getting any new clients at all for long stretches of time. He was constantly stressed. He was, um, he was working all the time, always trying to find something to do to keep him busy, to keep the ball moving, to go, 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 go. He wasn't being intimate with his wife. He wasn't connecting with his wife. He felt like they were on totally different pages. He was being really short tempered with his children and really like his first first reaction was annoyance and Uh, and it was just this massive burden for him and he was like I obviously have financial issues that I that are deep down that I need to clear and I have um, there's something going on here but he wasn't able to put his finger on it and he had seen coaches he had seen therapists in fact his mom is a therapist and um, not that you see your mom for therapist that would be wrong awkward (laughs) (laughs) but he he had done all of that mindset work and it really wasn't getting him anywhere So we did, um, you know, just some preparation sessions and then we did a half day session and now we've done our integration sessions and we're one month after his half day session. Uh, And he is, he made his highest earning month. He doubled his higher earning month. Previously, his highest earning month was 50,000. This last month, it's been a hundred thousand. So doubled uh, his highest earning month ever. Okay. He is spending way more time with his wife. He's connecting with his wife. They're being intimate. They're taking time aside to just hang out together. He's playing with his kids. Okay. He's not, he doesn't feel like he's, you know, a pressure pot that's ready to explode. Ah. And the analogy that he used with me when we were talking last is that it felt like uh, he was one of those sliding doors in the past that was getting nagged. It wasn't quite on its right track. And it's like, uh, like it's working enough, but it's not really working how it should be. And now it just feels like it's been placed on track to where the sliding door just slides how it's supposed to. And it didn't require everything. Yeah. So it sounds like he's more centered now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Centered, grounded. He, he says he just feels, you know, at peace with himself and he's able to sit and be, be present with not only his wife, but also with his clients, with his potential clients. He's a business coach. Okay. Um, so when I say clients, that's what I'm referring to with his, um, and he's able to sit in those, in those calls and really be present with them instead of focusing so much on his needs and what he, he's trying to get out of it. Yeah. What do you think was driving the pattern, whether it's for him or anyone else? Like, and and again, I'm referring to the self-sabotaging behavior that can come as a result of either um, complex trauma, simple trauma, or something that somebody is carrying around. And then they find themselves as an adult later on in life and they're halting their own development and evolution and growth. And yeah, yeah. For him, he, at some point in development pretty early on, because that's where we ended up going was, was uh, a. a a child self that he had locked away because he was afraid that this child self was a a monster and was going to ruin things and be a bad person. So he had locked this child self away behind this big, big wall. Um, And he had attached his sense of providing for his family and his sense of financial security and ability to make money to his sense of self-worth. And it was all mixed up and tangled. So So it's, it's not really a simple line of like, this is exactly what caused it, but it's, it's all of the stuff that gets mixed up and tangled okay. to where he really needed to be able to allow himself to attach to himself, child self, integrate his child self into the present and release the sense of worth from yeah. providing. Yeah. The worth based on external resources and mm-hmm. achievement. 
Yeah. So it sounds like when he was able then to connect with the different parts of himself, then he didn't have to walk around fragmented. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. Because um, so one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, invite and have you on this uh, Designing Your Legacy Conversation podcast, because many times I come across adults and the first hurdle is, can I even have a legacy? And, and it's very tied to their self-worth. There was something in their past, whether it was their upbringing, their conditioning, a message that was sent to them, something that has told them that they don't deserve a legacy. So it's almost like there's this thing and it's like outside the gates. It's outside the castle walls and they can't let it in. And, and it's fascinating in the sense that um, even just the, the idea of that uh, thought that they could achieve it, complete it, connect with it, they, they, they push it away. And it's like a, it's, it's very interesting in, the, in that den denial dynamic. And, and yes, obviously more people carry around trauma than, you know, what we believe it's, it's more than just people who've been in car accidents or people, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's, it's societal as well. There's so much in our society that compounds this trauma. Um, and especially for, um, if we look at different races and different genders and different sexual identities, there's so much that happens in our society that it doesn't even have to be one-on-one. -on -one. And then we have the generational trauma of all of our grandparents have been in war times or in depression times, right? Where human life throughout, throughout the human existence has been a struggle. And that, that trickles down in the way that our parents act and their parents have acted. Um, but, but yeah, it really does block the sense of worth and the sense of that, that this can happen for me and I can, I can have this as well. It's not just for other people. Right, right. And, and I absolutely hope that um, individuals like Paris Hilton do find the healing. And I agree with you that I think one of the most powerful um, remedies uh, with coaching and to add to talk therapy is asking the client to get in touch with their body, you know, stand up yes. in their office or wherever it is that they are sitting and, um, you know, taking the phone call or the Zoom call or wherever and asking them to move around that they're not, they don't have to just be like stiff on a, as a board on a, on a couch, like a therapist couch that it requires yeah. like play. And so I want to get into, into the remedies in a moment um, because you've been just uh, very generous with ideas. Um, is there anything else um, as it relates to the problem that's uh, valuable to know for the listener or the viewer? Are there any statistics, for instance, that really could wake them up in awareness to how uh, big this problem is today? Yeah, absolutely. So the one of the biggest issues that happened with the mental health field is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the DSM. It has all bipolar, borderline, narcissism, all of that is housed in its DSM. Okay. And in the 1980s, the DSM was created by a group of psychiatrists to form a common language. Not, it's not based on actual diseases that really exist. But it's treated by the mental health field as actual diseases that really exist. And then the, the pharmaceutical companies really hopped on that because it's, it's really great for them. If there doesn't have to be any evidence of a disease existing and anyone can be diagnosed with these, um, then they can be medicating everybody. And it's, it's a huge cash cow for, like for, the, for the pharmaceutical industries. And, and in reality, unfortunately, even though um, psychiatric medications are only about 30% effective, there are a ton of people on them and they can cause in really intense side effects, some even lifelong side effects, 
even if you stop taking the medication and uh, more people die from prescribed psychiatric medications taken as prescribed than they do from heroin overdoses every year. I've heard that. Yeah. It's it's really sad. And then, um, and then talk therapy. So when you're combining, you know, that psychiatrics with talk therapy, talk therapy is only about 2% effective. So you're going to something your whole life for the most part, that's about 32% effective and could kill you. Yeah. Um, before we move to some of the remedies, I I also want to ask, um, just out of curiosity, what helped you the most? Yeah. Um, was it like dance, yoga, something like, I mean, I, I don't know, ayahuasca, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I did, you know, I did so many things. I did so many things. And that's part of the the hard thing with offering something that nobody else offers is that that I can't find anybody to offer to me. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so for me, it's been really piecemealed. Um, there's a specific kind of yoga that I found really helpful that is um, a trauma-informed yoga. And it's really meant to help build up the connection between the mind and the body. It's very permission-based. Okay. Um, so that that type of yoga. And then I've also, um, you know, I found a lot of healing in the Native American culture ceremonies and through healers who were Native American um, doing doing different types of breath work and body work. That that was that was really a huge piece for me. Okay, wonderful. I know you've also mentioned that you've experimented some with psychedelics to yeah. turn off uh, different parts of the brain as it relates to fear, almost to like bypass that. Yeah. yeah. Would you speak to that just briefly? And then, uh, cause I just, I, I, I find it interesting because a lot of times we don't read about this in mainstream magazines and I'm not saying that you know, what you did to find healing will work for everyone. But I do think that education is important when it comes to choices and options, because many times people can give their power away to the, the man or the woman in the white lab coat without doing their own research ahead of time to understand what might be right for them or that they have three other options. Yeah, yeah. And and I think also we look at psychedelics as being this new dangerous thing, when in reality, it's the this is the old as old as time okay. shamans and healers have been using psychedelics since forever in all kinds of different cultures. And, you know, they were, they were called the seed Kona in the Norwegian cultures. They're, okay. they're shamans. And then, okay. you know, um, all of the different cultures had their shamans that use different types of psychedelics. Um, and they, they've been used even modernly in a lot of countries outside of the U S Uh, continuously. So they're really not new at all. And the research, even though it hasn't been academic um, and, you know, more Western research has been there for centuries, the more modern research has been around since about the 50s, the the research as far as psychedelics goes. So the two psychedelics that I work with are psilocybin, where it's legal. I travel to where it's legal with my with my clients um, and ketamine. Ketamine is a totally FDA approved, can be prescribed um, uh, psychedelic. And it's typically used in surgeries as it's a dissociative anesthetic, but at very low doses, it's a psychedelic. 
Um, and, and you see, unfortunately, because it is FDA approved, you see a bunch of clinics that are ketamine clinics that are just bringing people in, giving them the ketamine, sending them home. <laughs> and while that's a little bit safer than just getting high at home, okay. it's really not more effective than getting high at home. Okay. The beauty of ketamine is that it pumps the brain full of glutamate. Okay which is a chemical that has neuron connections. So with the damaged brain that gets damaged throughout life because of complex trauma issues, it, it can take those and it can heal those. But what happens during the, the glutamate heavy period is really important. So what we do with the, with the half day intensive sessions, like I was talking about with my last client, we, we do prep sessions beforehand that are just, you know, uh, there's no ketamine in those. And then, and then on the day of, we meet together, we do a bunch of breath work, body movement work, um, a lot of times rage release work. And we're, we're on this trajectory to make the ketamine as, you know, as helpful as possible and to have as good of experience as possible. So then the doctor comes in and administers the ketamine and that peak experience lasts about 45 minutes to 90 minutes, depending on the administration and the metabolism of the person. And then as they're coming out of that, so as they're settling back into the room, we dive into the deeper brain rewiring um, okay. and the, the parts and the um, art therapy often so that we're really taking advantage of the glutamate that's in their system. And the results are amazing. You know, within one to three sessions of those intensive half sessions, we're, we're seeing just phenomenal results and that last long term. So I keep in touch with my clients, but first we do integration for a couple of months afterwards, or we're doing those sessions without the ketamine. And then I, I keep in touch with them and I talk to them and, and six months out a year out they're they're doing great. They're doing amazing. They're not on medications. They're not having to be um, dependent on the mental health and psychiatric fields anymore. They're totally free to just live their lives and be themselves. Wonderful. So the reason that it works is it is it does it uh, push down their fears? Does it set aside their fears? Like, would you talk a moment about like why the fears are there? Almost like our brain trying to protect us, yeah. but yet it keeps us in that loop. Yes, exactly. So that's um, so. Yeah, we we develop these these fears. You know, uh, sometimes it's you know, if I, if I work through this, then am I even going to be myself anymore? Will I even like myself anymore? Will I lose friends? Will I, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Will I, or if I open this gate a little bit, will it all come flooding in and completely destroy me? Will I even be able to function if I take a peek? So what the, what the psychedelics do, whether it's psilocybin or ketamine, they, they take us in there and they just kind of open that cellar door. So we think of it all stored deep down in the cellar door, they open it up and they decrease the fear of it. So it can come out more without those blocks that are so, so heavy in the way. Um, And, and those blocks can be addressed in the deeper body and deeper brain therapies. Um, But the psychedelics really do help fast track it to where they're in this space, their, their brain is more active than usual. So it's not just how we have our brains as controlled as possible to be as functioning as possible to get through the day and to do what we have to do. There's more regions activated so that more connections can be drawn. It's kind of like if you look at a night sky and you see a whole bunch of different random stars. And then if you look at a map of constellations and then you can see the constellations in the stars. 
That's what psychedelics helps do is draw those constellations in our brain where things are connecting that haven't connected before. And that connects us to a sense of hope and that we're okay and that we can get through this, that we are powerful enough and that we are worth it to be able to face these fears that don't seem as scary anymore. And then we can open that cellar door and really clear it out. Wonderful. Wonderful. So um, some other remedies um, in addition uh, to psychedelics include, and I thought this was uh, fascinating, honesty. And we've talked about movement and actions, but honesty. So it's almost just telling the truth, even if the truth might be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And honesty with ourselves, really hey. looking at ourselves and being honest about how am I creating this for myself? It, how am I and why am I doing that? So one thing that, that can be really helpful is noticing when we're triggered and acknowledging okay. that it is us being triggered, not the other person being a jerk, not the other person <laughs> controlling our lives, right? That <laughs> helps the on the freeways. Crazy, right? <laughs> and, and there are people who do very mean things in the world, right? But at the end of the day, what are we doing? What's our accountability that's keeping us in the situation? So if it, if somebody is, you know, mean and, and you, you think about, okay, what am I that this means about me? What am I hearing this means about me? And this can be a real challenge. It takes some time to think about it because it's not how we're used to thinking about things, right? But if we're taking it to mean that we're not respectable and mm. I'm not respectable, I'm not worth their time, I'm unlovable, whatever it is, then we're acknowledging what that, where that trigger is actually coming from within yeah. us. So, yeah. so the individual stops internalizing it. Yeah. So yeah, we, we acknowledge it and then we have to see it. We have to remember that that doesn't mean that that's truth about us. That doesn't mean that it's fact about us. That means that that's a story that we've made up about ourselves since a very young age, likely. Mm-hmm. And then if we can trace that and notice where that's happening in the body. So when, when this person is being, I feel unlovable and unrespectable. And I feel that in my core and I feel that in my gut. Okay. So now we're being honest. That's what's really happening. And for, that we could take control of because we can't control the other person, right? So right, what right. we can take control of is what's happening with uh, in us. And then we can decide how we're going to react. And most often when we're not being honest with ourselves, when we're not being aware, we play in to our negative core beliefs. So oh, then we react. Can you yeah. say that one more time? <laughs> yeah. So when we're not being honest with ourselves and we're not being aware, we yeah. play into our negative core beliefs. So we then create situations that make it more able for us to be triggered into the state and that confirm to us that this is true, that these negative things are true, that we are unlovable, that we are unrespectable. And I think people who have been victimized at some part uh, in their life, uh, they can so easily internalize it, make it personal when it might not have anything to do with them, but it's almost like something tied to the ego that that's like their first pit stop, like on the monopoly board, like they just can't, you know, skip go. <laughs> yeah, and it's that, it's that protection, right? It's, right. Uh, it's, if we, if we're trying to be hyper aware of our surroundings and it's not conscious, we're not consciously trying to do this, but if our, if our nervous system and our salient system is trying to be so hyper aware of our surroundings to protect ourselves, then we do need to look at any sense of danger, any sense of possible rejection. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. And it's interesting in the distinction and nuances about fear. It's uh, what's, what is a real fear? What is a perceived fear? Because in the mind, if it's all fear and somebody has yet to take the time and invest the energy to look at the distinctions between each fear, it, it, those fears can drive them compared to like their values or their dreams, their vision, their legacy and so forth, because they're in that, you know, it's almost like a time loop. And unless they, they are conscious enough to want to step out of it, it is that metaphoric loop around the airport, another year, another decade. And, and, and I appreciate that this awareness and these conversations are coming into society more and more, because obviously you can't turn your friends into your therapist. And if they don't have the skills, then they can just enable that behavior because they don't know how to call it out in such a way that it's not going to create an argument. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and there's just, um, there's too much bias in a friendship as well too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really, you know, so much again is stored deeper down in the body. So being in touch with that sensation in the body, um, and being able to acknowledge, okay, so this is, this is where this is coming from. And then I can play into it or I can play out of it. So, so for example, if your, um, if your boss is belittling you and you then take, take that to mean that you're again, like not respectable, not valuable. And then you react to that by not standing up for yourself, by going and hiding in your corner and doing whatever your boss is saying to do, even if it doesn't make any sense at all, even if he's, you know, totally having you do crazy things, um, then you're playing into it. Then you're setting the stage for those negative beliefs to feel confirmed. Yeah, I think this takes a lot of courage uh, within the leadership realm because it's stopping the pattern, not just for yourself, but for that other person, because they might not even be mindful enough that they're doing this mm-hmm. because it's just their subconscious playing out what was done to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, we get ourselves into these situations over and over and over again. And then, and then we just, you know, take this confirmation that like, well, you know, my spouse doesn't respect me. My wife doesn't, re- I mean, not my, my spouse and my wife, who knows, yeah, you could yeah. have both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do you, <laughs> your boss doesn't respect you. Your parents don't respect you. You know, we start to see these patterns and we take them to mean that we are not respectful. We are not valuable. Yeah. And st- we need to take a chance. Okay, I am. I'm allowing myself to be in these situations in one way or another, and that doesn't take all of the blame off of other people because they are, you know, they're doing mean things or rude things or not okay things. But we can't change them again. Yeah. So we have to look at what am I doing and how can I play out of this and play into this? What do I want? What's my sense of meaning and purpose in life? Is when we when we know our meaning and purpose. And we act in alignment with it. It actually releases serotonin in our brain, which pulls us out of trauma response, out of survival response and out of dopamine seeking. So out of the, you know, the binge eating, the addiction, you know, all of that kind of stuff, it attaches us more to the front of our brain and pulls us out of the back of our brain so that we are more in control of our life. So knowing what is my sense of meaning and purpose and how can I play into that in this moment, instead of playing into my negative core beliefs. Yeah. And I think that's one of the magic, uh, magical things about things like coaching and therapy um, regarding what you do is if the client can have wins, then the momentum is at their back. And that becomes a much more exciting journey than falling into what we might call the land of familiar of, you know, past coping patterns that may have not been so healthy. So I want to move on to a couple other things for for the sake of of time. Um, 
you've also mentioned uh, remedies of, um, again, healthy habits, a weighted blanket or a beanbag, especially with kids today that are feeling trauma uh, and making sure that you don't take away playtime or recess. Um, Would you speak into any, any of those other things? Yes. Yeah. So our sensory system is so vital when it comes to being able to learn and being able to be grounded and calm and, um, And we really have to pay attention to that when kids are in complex trauma situations. What we tend to focus on is the behavior. And we do this, it's logically very linear idea of, you know, if there's a behavior, then you reward the behavior or you punish the behavior and then the behavior will change. But that, you know, going back to our conversation about the, like the treatment centers, all that does is pigeonholes them in a different way. It doesn't actually help heal them so that they can become you know, health, happy, healthy adults and productive adults. Um, and this applies to, to adults as well. But um, the gray matter in our brain grows when we are interacting with our environment in a play type fashion. So hiding under things, climbing over things, jumping up on things. That's when our gray matter grows. It doesn't grow from sitting and learning. That can help, you know, us retain some information, but it doesn't help us be able to actually function as a person. Okay. So if we, if we look at that, like it's so vital that, that recess not be taken away, that, that um, play not be taken away. And for adults too, um, you know, we, we want to just sit at our computers all day and get as much as we can done. Yeah, but in front really, of the blue light. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but really going and finding a way to play boosts creativity, boosts productivity, it boosts brain growth. And then the sensory system. So the sensory system gets really disrupted in trauma because it, it again, is looking for threats and it's not able to process. So often with trauma, we see things like, um, you know, if you, if you're like touched somewhere on your body, it can feel like really confusing, like you've been touched everywhere on your body or somewhere else on your body. Okay. Yeah. And, and then we, um, it causes a lot of dysregulation. And since that's so low down in the body, it affects everything above it. So anything that's happening deep down in the body, since the brain is a processor for the body, it affects the upper region. So then our behaviors are affected. Our thoughts are affected. All of that is affected, but, and our attention span. So we, we have kids that are diagnosed with ADHD and stuff that really it's, it's not that. Um, So being able to lay under a weighted blanket or, um, have some some things to fidget with have some time to get up and do things spinning around in a circle doing handstands yeah things really help to reset those um those sensory experiences and then help the upper regions of the brain be able to live better cope better yeah I should ask every viewer and listener of this uh, podcast session to do cartwheels today (laughs) yeah do it. No, don't hurt yourself, but do it. Yeah. 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 To, to get out of the monotony of, uh, what we're, what we expect that we're supposed to act like as adults compared to allowing our, ourselves to play and allowing that inner child to come out. Yeah. 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 One of, it, I'm go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, um, add that one of the things I also liked that you had mentioned in terms of solutions is, um, bouncing a ball. Um, so for instance, if, if somebody is imploding or exploding and they want to cut themselves, child, teenager, or adult, adult. Um, that the rhythm of bouncing a ball in the sensory experience can be something that um, if they need to release that energy, here is a healthier way to do it. Yes. 
Yes, rhythm in general, and especially rhythm in connection with another person's rhythm. Okay. So you can bounce a ball back and forth between another person or throw a ball back and forth between another person or even to sit and make silly facial expressions with somebody, okay. you know, across from you. That activates the, the region of you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just no, I seriously, with clients, I'll sit there and just be like, uh, and we'll, we'll do that. And it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Um, but that really helps um, with the, the region of our brain that's just above the brainstem. That hey. is, that's the only region of our brain that's present when we're born. And if we don't get enough eye contact and interaction, at that point in our life, okay. it, can, it can cause all kinds of issues with, you know, itchiness, random itchiness, oh. um, dysregulation, inflammation. So those things, getting your body in rhythm with another person's body, making silly facial expressions with people helps to heal that region of the brain. Yeah, that's delightful. And, and so it, it's, again, it's redirecting that energy so it doesn't stay stuck or become self-destructive. And what I'm, I'm almost hearing is we need parents to be good parents more than ever. And if the parents can't do that for whatever reason, um, it is our responsibility then to become creative, find the solutions, self-parent, or build a network of support that allows us to grow so we don't just um, stay in a victim mode our entire lives. Yeah. yeah, it's so important for parents to heal. And that's um, one of the, the biggest, you know, frustrations I've had with working with children or adolescents is when the parents don't do their own healing and aren't willing to do their own healing because the, the kid isn't going to heal. And that's one of the, the one of the massive issues with working with the, the diagnoses in mental health. And I mean, first off, they're not valid. Second off, um, and that's not to say the symptoms aren't valid. The symptoms are valid. Okay. Are, they, are, they, are you having these symptoms because you have a chemical imbalance in your brain? No, that was an advertising campaign by the pharmaceutical companies. That's not based in science. <laughs> so when, but when we look and we say, well, my kid has ODD or ADHD or depression or something. So I'm going to send them to treatment, but I'm fine. I'm a happy, healthy adult. I don't need to go to treatment. Yeah. Then and they distance themselves. Yes. Then yeah. we undercut the therapeutic process at, because, with, you know, children form an environment there. They don't form alone. And, and the environment helps us to create who we are and how we react to things. So the parents need to heal for the kids to heal. Healing is everybody's individual responsibility. Yeah. And it's fascinating because I've heard when one individual in a family or one individual in a group heals, it almost has a positive ripple effect energetically somehow in the invisible realms. I don't know how it works. But, um, but I do know that that is the case. And so obviously it's, it's always hard to be the first, but why not in your lifetime choose to heal compared to just um, staying in this loop of trauma. And I know that sometimes it can feed like a peptide addiction in the brain. Yeah. If you had a megaphone for a moment, whether it's to Paris Hilton or to any of the affluent children that find themselves, you know, feeling that they are defective, what, what would be your universal message? My universal message would be that you're, you're not defective, <laughs> that, okay. that there's so much in our families and our societies in the mental health care system. It, it tells us that we are, but the reality is the way that you navigated your trauma growing up and your trauma in treatment centers and your trauma with the mental health bill, whatever your trauma was, that you, the way that you navigated it is evidence of your unique brilliance, of your power. 
that you were able to, to mitigate the damage, that you were able to adapt to the damage and you were able to keep going and keep, keep trying to make the world a better place. I mean, you know, for Paris Hilton, she's coming out, she's being brave about all of this stuff that she's been to. And, and she's that, been attacked. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. She's been, it's, it's hard to, to go out and say these things, but when you, when you're able to do those things, when you're able to move forward, that's, it's a, it's a sign of brilliance and all of the disruption and all of the um, symptoms that come from complex trauma are just remnants of evidence of your brilliance and being able to navigate those things in the first place as such a small child. Yeah, I've often heard that uh, the fascinating person to meet at the dinner party is the person that's lived all these experiences, not the person that has never had to be challenged or had to overcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I just bring that point up because I think sometimes people can think that, oh my gosh, I had to overcome this. And they think it's like, you know, a blemish of their past or a blemish of their identity compared to the a heroic story that can come forthwith. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's, and it's again, like that taking on that shame. Right. And then, you know, another thing that I, I would say is that there is, there is hope. So I had, you know, I had a client when I worked at the residential treatment center, I was his therapist and he was there for two years. He had um, adoption trauma, which even if you go into a really good home, that moment of disruption from the, the you know, woman that you've been growing in from nine months, mm -hmm. that disrupts the brain at a really early stage and causes, causes trauma. And then some early childhood sexual trauma as well. And he had... Um, he had struggled with suicidality. He had attempted suicide multiple times. He had been in hospitals several times. He had been in therapy since a young child. And then he came into our residential treatment center and was there for two years, continued to struggle. Um, and in those environments, it's, yeah, the staff were wonderful, but they're also not trained trauma therapists. So it's kind of this constant struggle between the therapist and the, and the environment of the treatment center. Um, and then, so he went home and he immediately relapsed on self-harm, on drug use, was taking more serious drugs like Xanax. So his parents decided to come back out to Utah, which is where I'm located. So they flew out to Utah and we did, um, we spent a week together doing more intensive um, therapy with the ketamine assistance. And we did a family session with the ketamine assistance with the parents as well. And we were able to dive way deeper than we ever were able to do in the confines of the treatment center. And he made more progress in that one week towards healing than Yay. he did in the two years of being in a residential treatment. And the, you know, the several years before that of being in and out of different treatment centers, hospitals, therapists. Yeah. And, and the individual needs to connect and heal and feel like they are more than a customer to these treatment centers, even if it's a million dollar business yeah. as we talked about yesterday. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so in closing, what would you like your personal legacy to be and what core values do you get to honor? Yeah. So my personal legacy, I really, um, you know, like you said it in my intro, um, I want to make a big difference in the mental health field and in the world. Um, a lot of what we're seeing in our society is a direct result. And we can see in neuroscience research that it is a direct result of generational complex trauma, where we have, you know, so many rampant diseases, we have the the oppression, the wars, you know, all of these kinds of things, the us versus them, the extreme ide ideations that then cause, you know, black and white thinking. Um, if uh, my, us versus them. 
Yeah, us versus them. Exactly. So healing complex trauma in leaders, in innovators, um, you know, causes a ripple effect, like you said, um, where, you know, you, you, the, the key player seeks healing. And then from there, so much changes. It's like a gear in a watch, right? One changes and they all start changing so that, um, so that we can really heal the world. So that's my, uh, my legacy that I want to leave is leaving a world that is in a state of healing. Lovely. And the core values that you get to honor by that. The core values that I get to honor, you know, one of my core values is that, you know, is love. And as, as cheesy as it sounds, we're um, creatures of love and a healed brain an optimized brain is one of love and altruism. Um, you know, for example, the person who I did EMDR training with had done EMDR with um, some, some uh, organizations that had uh, the value or they thought they had the value of suicide bombing. Okay. And this one individual person ha- did want to be a suicide bomber. That was their goal in life. Um, and as, as silly as that may sound to us, that well, was it's like they- instant significance. Yeah. 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 It's it's the sense of honor and duty. Right. So, so they did, you know, EMDR work. And when this individual's brain was in in a more optimized state, they no longer wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. They, they wanted to be in peace and in love and in altruism. So those are, those are my core values and that, that it's not that, that that's where everybody is in their core. If we can get to a state of healing. Yeah, I love that you re- redirected his energy so that he didn't find his identity in being a suicide bomber. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't me. It was the person who trained me. It, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah but still, I just, uh, I think it's just a beautiful uh, skill set to be able to redirect somebody's thought energy so that they can still self-express, but in a constructive way compared to yes. a destructive way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I just uh, appreciate the solutions that you've brought forth and also the level of honesty regarding this uh, mental health field. And um, as many people didn't know about the documentary of Paris Hilton, she's one example out of many, many young adults and children that are walking that path that that probably feel pathologically lonely and um, need to know that there are resources out there that are um, not just within that manual that you referred to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Are are there any other closing thoughts? you know, I just, just hope that there, there is healing out there that, um, that there's not people that are just bad, that, that are just defective. Right. And, um, that we really have to look at, you know, how, how did this come to me? How am I keeping this on? And then, you know, seek out help. And I, you know, I'd love to, to chat with anybody who's ready to, to really recalibrate to a state of wellness. Wonderful. Okay. So in closing, I am Angelina Carlton, the hostess of the Design Your Legacy podcast, as well as the founder to Legacy Planning, a boutique coaching and advisory firm based out of Beverly Hills, California, but international in those I coach. I hope to dive deep into subjects that can help a person define, develop, and execute their legacy and continue to scour the landscape for those who can be great resources to every dimension of your legacy. For many listeners, there can never be enough education and preparation in their moat around the castle. Whether you find yourself with new wealth or generational wealth, may the content of this channel be an anchor in the storms ahead. We do our best to provide original content for your intellectual and emotional curiosity. 
Thank you for joining us today. And remember, I coach people on the subject of personal legacies. Of course, please do your own due diligence as some areas are black and white, while others are gray in nature in the changing landscape. Again, I hope you find these podcast interviews entertaining in their education. And thank you so much for joining us today.